Scripture reading is Luke chapter 23, verses 33 through 37. In Luke chapter 23, verses 33 through 37. When they came to the place called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right and the other on the left. But Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they cast lots, dividing up his garments among themselves. And the people stood by looking on. And even the rulers were sneering at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if this is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up to him, offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. Good morning. It is a blessing to be together this Lord's Day. We're thankful for each and every one that is present this morning to, to worship God, to be an encouragement to me, and I hope that we are all able to encourage each other and be lifted up in the most holy faith and built up that we might be strengthened to continue to be serving the Lord as faithful disciples ought to be. If you are visiting with us, we're especially grateful for your presence here this morning, and we hope that you can stick around and get to visit with us a little bit after services have come to a conclusion. In Luke chapter 23, Luke begins setting the scene for Jesus' death. In verse 33, this is when they came to the place called the skull. There they crucified Him. And the criminals, one on the right and the other on the left. Think about describing a place as the skull. That, that immediately conjures up images of a graveyard. Of a place that is associated with death. And Luke, he tells us that they took Jesus there to be crucified. And he was with two criminals, one on his right and one on his left. I'm reminded of the words of Isaiah, when Isaiah would say that he was numbered with the transgressors. Jesus was there with them and he was numbered with them. And while Jesus was hanging on the cross, He was in great pain and anguish. And the Gospel writers, they don't give us much insight into the emotional turmoil, nor even the physical pain. They take a very matter-of-fact kind of approach for the most part that reports what Jesus experienced the mocking, the, brut the brutal treatment that He underwent. But they also give us some insight into what He said while He was on the cross. And there, He made several statements in what has generally been accepted as the order of what is the number seven, such a biblical number, that this has been the generally accepted order of the way and how and when He said these things from a chronological standpoint. 
that from 9 a.m. until noon, he made the statement, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And then a little bit later, as Luke reports, as Jesus said to the thief, Truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. And as he began to look around and he saw the disciple whom he loved and his mother, and he said, Behold your mother. Another statement that Jesus made while he was on the cross. And then there was darkness on the face of the earth at what is the brightest point in the day, the hottest point in any day from about 12 to 3. There's complete darkness while Jesus was on the cross. And there during that darkness, Jesus was silent. And approximately at 3 p.m., he spoke again, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus said, I am thirsty. All by it is finished. And what is generally accepted as the last and final words of Jesus while hanging on the cross. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And after he said that, he breathed his last. Luke records for us. These statements have all sorts of meaning behind them. Very important statements. And over the next few months, we're going to be looking at some of these statements. And today we're going to begin with the first statement that Jesus made while on the cross. They're found in Luke chapter 23 and verse 34. But Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they cast lots, dividing up His garments among themselves. What you might notice about that particular statement and three of these statements that Jesus makes on the cross are statements that He is making in sort of a prayer formula, or at least where He is making statements to God the Father. And these statements in particular take on the form of prayers from Jesus that, like we find here in Luke chapter 23 and verse 34, where Jesus is addressing His Father, He is praying and He is asking His Father to look upon those who are putting Him to death. And that reveals something to us about our Savior. Is that even while He was on the cross, as He was in pain and the anguish and the agony that you can only imagine that He was undergoing and that He was feeling, the emotional turmoil that He must have been undergoing, the pressure that He had been feeling from the night before and the exhaustion that he had been going to feel. What Jesus is there doing, he is not thinking about himself. That he is thinking about others. You see this very clearly here in this first statement when Jesus says, Father, forgive them. 
He is not asking for relief for Himself. He is making intercession for His enemies. For the ones who have put Him on the cross. It's not a prayer of selfishness. It was a prayer on behalf of others. An intercessory prayer on behalf of those responsible for killing Him. Don't let that escape our attention. That Jesus was interceding on their behalf, asking for God to extend His forgiveness to them. In the book of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 7, in Hebrews the 7th chapter, the Hebrew writer is talking about how Jesus is our great high priest. And he is talking about some of the things that qualify Jesus to be our high priest. And he describes some of the work that a high priest does. And he makes this important connection here. In Hebrews chapter 7 and in verse 25, he says, Therefore, talking about Jesus, therefore He is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through Him, since He always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus, in His purpose and His mission as our great high priest, it is about making intercession for sinners, for people who are unworthy of forgiveness. Jesus came and He asked for forgiveness to be given. In, in His statement on the cross in Luke chapter 23, Father, forgive them. You think about who, who's the them? And in Acts chapter 3, in Acts chapter 3, we get Peter's insight about those who were responsible for putting Jesus to death. In Luke chapter 3 and in verse 14, notice what Peter says in this sermon. This is his second sermon in the book of Acts. It says, But you disowned the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, but put to death the prince of life the one whom God raised from the dead, a fact to which we are witnesses. As he was preaching to the Jews there in Acts chapter 3, he said, you are responsible for putting Jesus to death. And your leaders are the ones who are responsible for putting Jesus to death. In Acts chapter 4, as Peter and John had been arrested, and the apostles had been told not to preach in the name of Jesus any longer. The apostles came together and they began to pray. And they quoted from Psalm 2, which is interesting, where it talks about the kings and the rulers of the earth and how they go against God's anointed or God's Christ. And we find out in Psalm 2 that God's anointed, God's Christ, the Messiah, is God's Son as well. And as they quote from that, they come to the conclusion in verse 27 in this prayer, for truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. That you came against God. That in Psalm 2 was really fulfilled when they began to attack God's Son. 
You had the rulers of the earth. You had the Jewish ruler, Herod, that he names there very specifically. He also names Pontius Pilate. Again, a Gentile, a Roman ruler. That the rulers of the earth began to attack God and His Son. So you had the political rulers who were complicit in the death of Jesus. The soldiers that were nailing Him to the cross. And He was praying for all of the Jewish people who were agreeable to His death. In Luke, or in Acts chapter 3, in that first sermon, or that second sermon of Peter, in Acts chapter 3 and verse 17, Peter says, And now, brethren, I know that you acted in ignorance, just as your rulers did also. That anyone that was there on that day that said, Crucify Him! Crucify Him! They were all guilty. Jesus was praying for all of them. And you think about what Jesus was praying. Father, forgive them. And Jesus embraced what is a radical notion to many people. Something that is hard to fathom here. The concept of forgiveness. I use that word radical because forgiveness is something that we don't often embrace at first. Especially for those who are treating us badly. What we oftentimes want is justice for those who do something wrong. We want justice for those who are evil. We want justice for our enemies. We want mercy for ourselves and our friends. But we want justice And Jesus does not ask for justice. He asks for forgiveness. The idea of forgiveness, it means to let go or to send away. And it's usually used in financial discussions relating to debt. That a debt is forgiven. You're released from it. You no longer have to pay back this debt. You see that used in Matthew chapter 18 when Jesus gave a parable about two different kinds of men. One man was released of a large debt. That would probably be equivalent to millions of dollars in our financial system. He was released from that. It was forgiven him. And instead of showing compassion to someone that was indebted to him, who owed just a very small debt, he was ruthless and held that person in contempt until the debt was paid. You see, people tend to not want to show forgiveness. They want justice. They want things to be done the right way. They want to be repaid. And the principle that Jesus is trying to convey in Matthew chapter 18 in that parable is that when we are forgiven, we ought to be the ones who extend forgiveness. That whenever we recognize and understand that we have humbled ourselves in repentance and that we have come before God and we have ourselves been forgiven, that we are ready to extend forgiveness to those who need it. 
That is what Jesus was asking for. He was asking for forgiveness for those who were doing something that was criminal. For putting Jesus, the Son of God, to death. Even that, He was asking for people to be forgiven. He was asking God to extend forgiveness. But forgiveness is not just something that happens. Luke, in, in, earlier in the Gospel of Luke, in Luke chapter 17, in Luke chapter 17, Jesus teaches us a very important principle about forgiveness. And this works for how God extends forgiveness. And it also works in how we extend forgiveness. In Luke chapter 17, Jesus is teaching us about how we need to be forgiving people. How we need to be ready to forgive people when they have sinned and they repent of that sin. In Luke chapter 17 and verse 3, be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. Did you notice that word? If. That implies a condition that must be met. If someone repents, then you forgive them. And that is certainly how God extends forgiveness. It's not just unconditional forgiveness. Forgiveness is conditioned upon obedience. We see that in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 2. In Acts the second chapter, when on the day of Pentecost, in Acts chapter 2 and in verse 38, Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Notice the order of that. Repent, be baptized, forgiveness of sins. You do that for forgiveness, to be forgiven. When Simon, in Acts chapter 8, sinned, in Acts chapter 8 and in verse 22, Peter told Simon the sorcerer, there in Acts chapter 8 and verse 22, Therefore repent of this wickedness of yours, and pray the Lord that if possible the intention of your heart may be forgiven you. You see that there are acts and conditions of faith and obedience that must be met for God to extend forgiveness. If you've never become a Christian, you need to repent and be baptized. If you have become a Christian, you need to repent and pray if you sin. Which is what the Apostle John says in 1 John chapter 1 and verse 9 that when we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us. Jesus was not asking for unconditioned forgiveness here. But he did not want God to hold this sin against them above any other sin. Jesus went to the cross to die for those who are putting Him on the cross. He wanted forgiveness, complete forgiveness, to be extended to those who were being cruel and unjust. He died for them. He wanted His death and the benefits of salvation to be offered even to those people. And what is fascinating here in Luke chapter 23, in Luke chapter 23, that not only did He 
go to the cross to make salvation and the forgiveness of sins possible, He stayed on the cross for them. Notice in Luke chapter 23 and verse 35, and the people stood by looking on, and even the rulers were sneering at Him, saying, He saved others, let Him save Himself, if this is the Christ of God, His chosen one. Have you ever noticed that statement? And have you ever thought about Jesus did have the power to come off the cross? Jesus told us that He could have called 12 legions of angels to come. But He never did. Jesus didn't decide to just go to the cross one time. He decided at least twice. Because here they are mocking Him they're testing Him. They're tempting Him. Saying, you can come down. You can save yourself. But He chose to stay on the cross. He didn't decide to go to the cross just once. He went and decided that several times. He stayed on the cross for them. He not only died for them, though, Jesus went to the cross for me and for you. In Romans chapter 3 and verse 23, Paul tells us, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's not one person here who does not need God's grace and the benefits of Jesus' death. And what is amazing here is that Jesus is embodying what He had been teaching throughout His ministry. That He was praying for His enemies. Jesus taught us to do that. In Luke chapter 7, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus teaches us to love our enemies. He taught us to not be vindictive. Notice in Luke chapter 6, in Luke chapter 6 and verses 27 through 29, but I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. Whoever hits you on the cheek, offer him the other also. And whoever takes away your coat, do not withhold your shirt from him either. Even whenever people are doing bad and evil things against you, you go out of your way to help them. That's the principle Jesus taught us. You don't go to try to be vindictive. You love your enemies. It's a very radical concept, isn't it? Jesus taught us to show God's mercy to others. In verse 36, be merciful just as your Father is merciful. He taught us to show... God's mercy to others. Another principle in Luke chapter 11 and verse 4, Jesus taught us to pray that we ourselves would extend forgiveness. In Luke 11 and verse 4, and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves also forgive everyone who is indebted to us. Could we truthfully pray those words? Jesus could. Jesus could. How many times do we 
ask for God's intercession, for God's love and God's forgiveness to be shown to those who sin against us. When we look to the cross, we see a loving Savior who did just that very thing. But then you consider also what Jesus said. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Something that Peter also acknowledges in Acts chapter 3. That they put death, the Son of God, in ignorance. In Acts chapter 3 and verse 17, a passage that we read just a few moments ago. And now, brethren, I know that you acted in ignorance, just as your rulers did also. Yet what is interesting to see and to recognize as you read the book of Acts in particular, that you see Jesus' death, it's framed as a murder. In Acts 2 and verse 23, in Peter's sermon, this man, talking about Jesus, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put Him to death. Chapter 3 and verse 15, but put to death the Prince of Life, the One whom God raised from the dead, a fact to which we are witnesses. In 4.27, a verse that we've already read this morning, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, that you put Him to death. They recognized that they put Him to death. In chapter 7, in verse 52, in Stephen's sermon, At the very end of that, he says, Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. We could go on. This wasn't just an accidental death. This was very manipulative, a very intentional And what Stephen and the apostles are saying is that you murdered Jesus. This was not an accidental, ignorant act. They killed someone who was innocent and undeserving of death. And in what is an admission of Jesus' innocence, I want you to think about this. In Mark chapter 14, in verses 55 through 59, where we learn that Jesus was standing before the Sanhedrin, and remember they had to call false witnesses to come present a false testimony about him because they didn't have anything that could be used against Jesus. Think about how that was a testament of Jesus' true innocence. That all of this was a conspiracy. This was done very intentionally. Pilate knew that Jesus was innocent. He declared it several times. So of what exactly were they ignorant? What did they not know that they were doing? 
And I believe the answer is that they were ignorant of how their actions fit into God's redemptive plan. Think about the words in Isaiah chapter 53. How explicit Isaiah is. Isaiah chapter 53, in verses 7 through 9, where it says, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter, and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers. So he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living? For the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due, his grave was assigned with, a, with wicked men. He was with a rich man in his death, because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. It's hard for us to read Isaiah 53 and not say, how did they not get that? But they did not understand the scope of what was going on. In John chapter 11, this is perhaps one of my favorite passages to show that how ignorant they were of, of what was exactly going on. In John chapter 11, after Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead, and many people were beginning to believe in Jesus, the conspiracy against Jesus was beginning to really grow and come to a head. In John chapter 11 and in verse 49, you have Caiaphas with the Sanhedrin council, many of the Pharisees. And Caiaphas, he rebukes them because they are afraid that because of Jesus, that now there's going to be a lot of attention put on Judea and Jerusalem from Rome. And Caiaphas, he says, you know nothing at all. They are afraid of what's going to happen. That because of one man and all the things that are taking place, that now Rome was going to come against the Jews and they were going to start killing them or something. In verse 50, it says, Nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you that one man die for the people and that the whole nation not perish. Caiaphas thought he was so wise here. He thought he was so wise. He said it's better for Jesus to die than for the whole nation to die. So don't try to prevent Rome from doing something. In verse 51 John, he says, now he did not say this on his own initiative, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation. He did not know what he was saying. He thought he was being wise in the ways of the world, and yet he was prophesying in ignorance. The crucifixion of Jesus was not accidental. The words of Peter and the apostles that... Jesus went to the cross in accordance to the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. That God's hand was involved in the death of Jesus. That God was going to bring about redemption and salvation by Jesus' blood that was shed. What they were ignorant of was not that Jesus was innocent, that not that Jesus was undeserving of death. They understood that full well. 
What they were ignorant of was the spiritual significance of the cross and of a crucified Messiah that was going to be killed by their own hands. That is not at all what they expected. Because that's foolish. As Paul would say in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 18, for the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. As Josh pointed out, as he was leading us in worship, as he said, and in the cross you see this paradox, really. You see humiliation, you see pain, you see suffering, but you also see glory. You see salvation. You see hope. Don't you? Those are two radically opposed ideas that are united in the cross. And preaching that message, that is something that is so different, it's so hard for us to understand. That's why Paul is saying that the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing to those who are lost. They don't understand it. But the message of the cross and the Gospel, it is the power of God for salvation. They were ignorant of how God, how their actions, and what they thought would be pleasing to God. They thought they were putting to death a blasphemer. They did not recognize that through their lying, through their conspiring, and through their manipulation, and putting to death an innocent man, they were ignorant of how God was using their deceit, their conspiracy, and their manipulation to fulfill His plans. The cross was part of God's plan. They just did not realize it. They were ignorant of those things. That while they thought they were defending God and putting to death this Jesus, who they thought was opposed to God, they were helping accomplish what Jesus came to do. And while they were happy that they had seemingly won and put that blasphemer Jesus down, the prayer that Jesus cried out was answered by them when they nailed Jesus to the cross. His death ensured the forgiveness of sins for those who would call on His name. And then finally this morning, I want you to think about what Jesus' death means. It means that we are called to imitate Jesus. Peter is very clear in 1 Peter chapter 2. The Apostle Peter says, For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in His steps. Then you read in the book of Acts, you read of a man named Stephen, who began preaching and teaching. And he quickly created a stir. False witnesses were used against Stephen. He makes some comments 
just before he is put to death or and killed, that he saw the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Jesus had made a very similar statement when he was standing before the Jewish council. And then you see what Stephen said and what were his last words. In Acts chapter 7 and in verse 60, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Having said this, he fell asleep. What you see is Stephen accepting Jesus' example. And he lives it out. And what is a very radical idea and notion of forgiveness, praying for my enemies, not being vindictive, Stephen fully embraced the message of Jesus in his life and even to his death. And that is something that each and every disciple is called to have the same kind of attitude. We may not ever be placed in a situation where we would be a martyr. Where we would have to die because of our faith. We may never see that situation. But we have to have the same kind of attitude. The same kind of devotion. The Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Notice his words. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 8, he says, We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not despairing, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. I love what Paul is saying here is that I will undergo any suffering, any persecution, any harm because Jesus endured it. He did the same thing. And so, what you see, Paul says in verse 11, for we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. That we need to take on the same attitude that Jesus had in death. We need to live with that same mentality. In verse 14, knowing that He who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus, and will present us with you. And as we embrace persecution, as we embrace hardship, tribulation, we do that with the attitude that Jesus did. So that we ourselves can have the hope of resurrection just as Jesus was raised from the dead. that we not only need to see Jesus 
as our great high priest who offered intercession for those who were putting Him on the cross, we need to see Jesus as the high priest who offered His life for us. But we need to look at His example and we need to imitate it. We need to imitate the dying Savior who went to the cross for my sins and for your sins. Jesus went to the cross in full embrace of His purpose and mission to give Himself as the sacrifice for sins so that we may have salvation in His name. He accepted and embraced the role as a Savior who makes intercession for sinners. He did not run away from that. He chose it time and time again. He prayed for full forgiveness. He fulfilled the redemptive plan of God despite the arrogance and the ignorance of those putting Him to death. He left us an example to follow that we might imitate Him. Jesus went to the cross for you and for me. The question for you this morning is, are you willing to be united with Christ in His death, the burial, and the resurrection? Coming to Christ to be baptized in water. You can have your sins washed away. Come to the cross. The Apostle Paul said in the book of Galatians chapter 2, In verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. Are you willing to unite yourself with Christ, be crucified with Him, and live in the same way that He did to show forgiveness and mercy to those who do us wrong? If we, being here this morning, you realize that you're not in a right relationship with the Lord. You need to be crucified with Christ. We want to help you do that. We want to help you make that commitment to following Christ, to become a disciple of His and imitate Him in His love and His forgiveness and in His devotion to following God and doing what is right. If we can help you in any way this morning, would you come now as we stand and as we sing?